Well, what, what better way to go out than to change the sermon schedule one last time? Uh, we're not going to get through uh, John 4. What do I have there? John 4, 1 through 42 today. We'll break that up into two sermons. So we'll pick up in verse 27 next week. How wide does the net of Christ's mercy extend? Extend. How far can God's grace through the gospel reach? Well, we saw with the story of Nicodemus that no one is beyond the need of God's grace, even a religious elite person like Nicodemus. Even he needs new birth. So we have one end of the moral spectrum, the more, uh, the, the kind of, from the human perspective, the most religious among us even need salvation. And so we might look at the story of Nicodemus all by itself and think, well, if I'm going to be saved, then I need to have a similar background to Nicodemus. I need to be Jewish. I need to be religious. I need to be morally in conformity to the law. But John includes this story in chapter 4 about the Samaritan woman to show us that Jesus' mercy extends the reach of the gospel not just to those who think that they're all religiously set, secure. He does need the gospel. But, but the extent of Jesus' reach, the extent of his mercy with the gospel goes to the other extreme as well. So that here we're going to see someone who is not on the same page ethically and religiously and morally as Jesus or as Nicodemus. But the gospel still has the power to, to reach her as well. And I think the point of these two extremes, one self-righteous religious man who's, um, as one author puts it, is running towards the truth, right? He comes to Jesus at night asking him questions. And the other extreme of, of a debased, immoral, half-breed of a woman who's running away from the truth. The gospel is powerful to save both of them. It's available to all who will call on the name of the Lord. And that's consistent with what Jesus told to Nicodemus. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Can I get this mic turned on a little bit? It's getting a little ringing up here. One author puts it this way. The world of sinners does not just include respectable insiders looking for the truth, like Nicodemus, but also broken outsiders who are running from the truth. None of us are beyond the need of God's grace like Nicodemus, and none of us are beyond the reach of God's grace like the Samaritan woman. What a great picture of how the gospel reaches everybody from the most religious, self-righteous to the wickedest among us. And so let's look at this story uh, beginning in chapter 4 with verse 1. This is the word of God. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, 
near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. John wants us to see with this story, and I think the Holy Spirit does, that Jesus pursues outsiders for salvation. Jesus pursues outsiders for salvation. This passage answers the question, what kind of people does Jesus save? We already saw in chapter 3, he saves those who are self-righteous and don't think they need it. Here he's going to say, The kind of people that Jesus saves are those who are outsiders, those who are ethnically outside and religiously outside and morally outside. So let's see these three points here in the text. Number one, Jesus pursues ethnic outsiders for salvation in verses 1 through 9. Jesus pursues ethnic outsiders for salvation. Now before we get to the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, we um, we have some... Uh, we have a setting that's, that's here in verses 1 through 3 where Jesus flees from unnecessary confrontation. Jesus starts to gain a following and the Pharisees notice it. And they notice that he's baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist is. And so they're, they're, we see a kind of a conflict here. We already saw last week that John the Baptist is saying, that's not a big deal to me because he must increase and I must decrease. But the Pharisees are seeing this as a kind of a competition. And so... Um, they're about to come after him and perhaps either make him king by force or have some premature confrontation with Jesus that he's not ready for because he still needs to do a number of things before he's ready to die and before he's ready to talk to them about being Messiah and so on. 
So he leaves the region of Judea and he heads uh, where he's less well known, up in the northern regions of Israel and in Galilee. And in order to get to Galilee, he has to go through Samaria. In verses 4 through 9, we see that Jesus makes a special effort to reach outsiders. He makes a special effort to reach the outsiders. Notice in verse 4, and he had to pass. The, the, the verb there, had, um, comes from the, the Greek word that, that is translated in other places. It is necessary, or he must. So he had to. It was a necessity for him to go through Samaria. And some scholars believe that, that Jews never passed through Samaria. They hated the Samaritans that much that they never passed through there. And so when, when it says that he had to go there, it was saying that God sovereignly had Jesus talk to the Samaritan woman. So in that sense, he had to go there. He must go there in order to talk to her. And so there might be something to that. Um, Jews hated Samaritans. They avoided them at all costs. I mean, Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jews and half-Gentiles. So they really had, in, in view of the Jewish religious elites, they had abandoned their own ethnic background. And so, so maybe Jesus was doing something different than all other Jews. The Jew, other Jews supposedly all went around the outside of Samaria, took the long way around up to Galilee, and Jesus did something different. But the historian Josephus suggests that, were, that that was the case only for Jewish elites. So the, the ones who really were sticklers on their ethnicity, they were the ones who traveled around Samaria and up to the northern part of Galilee. But not all the Jews. The, the common uh, custom of Jews in general is that they would actually go right through Samaria. Now, they probably didn't have a whole lot of dealings with them. They just made their way through there because it was, it was quicker. And um, so if that's the case, what does John mean when he says that Jesus had to, he must pass through Samaria? Um, could be just saying that he had to go north and this is the way that he went. Whatever the case, we still know that Jesus is seeking outsiders and that, G that God has a purpose for him in this town because of verse 7. Um, verse 7, there came a woman from Samaria to draw water. So whatever the case, whatever reason he had to go through that city, God had a purpose for him that, that he was going to meet this woman and have a conversation with her. In verses 5 and 6, we see the humanity of Jesus, something that we might not think about too much because we constantly think of him as in, in a, kind of a crass way, I think. Sometimes we think about him like a superhero, that he never had any needs, that he, he, um, he wasn't fully human, but the Bible teaches that he was fully God and fully man. So that, verse 5 tells us that he was tired, or verse 6 tells us that, being wearied from his journey. He had the same kind of feelings that you do when you've had a long day. You've been walking through the hot sun. Jesus had to sit down and get something to drink. Verse 8, the disciples went to the city to buy food. And they will come back into the picture. And uh, we'll, we'll see them more next week or next time, uh, two weeks from now. In verse 7, the woman goes to the well to draw water. And notice that she comes here at the end of verse 6 at the sixth hour. The sixth hour is noon. And so this is the hottest part of the day. Normally what the women would do is that they would come to draw water at the coolest time of the day, which would be in the morning or the evening. But very likely she was a social outcast because of her immorality. And as a result, she was not welcome to 
come when the other ladies would come. So she came at a time when it was uncomfortable to come. She had to come during the middle of the day. She was all by herself in the heat of the day. And Jesus takes the initiative to, to pursue her. Notice the end of verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So Jesus is the one that sparks up the conversation. And notice her response in verse 9. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? It seems like she would have been going about her business and never said a word to Jesus because she knew he was a Jew. She knew she was a Samaritan. And we just don't talk. We don't have any dealings with each other. So if Jesus wouldn't have initiated the conversation, they very likely wouldn't have talked. And John is helping us to see the disdain that the Jews had for the Samaritans. Notice the end of verse 9. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That phrase, no dealings, uh, could also be translated, they do not share things with. And what is Jesus asking her to do? Give me some water. He's not saying, take out your pitcher and pour it into my cup that I have. In fact, she's going to say, you don't even have anything to draw with. So he's actually asking to use her cup. And so what John is saying is, normally, Jews and Samaritans... They don't even share anything with each other. They would never touch uh, their lips of the same cup. That's how much of a disdain they have for one another. But Jesus here breaks down the ethnic barrier between him and the Samaritan woman so that she can get what is most needed for herself. A cup of living water. Eternal salvation, which is what she ultimately needed. Lots of application there that we can consider for ourselves. Sometimes we're not willing to talk to people of a different culture, of a different ethnic background. Because we've had it our way and, and this is our country and, and 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 whatever. And shame on us for taking uh, uh, having this desire for our own comfort and our own people rather than being willing to cross ethnic barriers in order to share the gospel with people. Jesus did this with the Samaritan woman. He pursues religious or he pursues ethnic outsiders for salvation. Then in verses 10 through 14 and then and then verses 20 through 24, Jesus pursues religious outsiders for salvation. He also pursues religious outsiders, those who are not do not have the same background as he does. Now and I say religious, don't think religious like evil um, because there, it can't have that connotation. But what I'm saying is that Jesus had the background of Judaism, right? He, he wasn't, a, he, he wasn't uh, following the law of Moses by any means. He was abolishing it. But, but he had that background. And so what he's doing is he's going across the, this barrier where she had a different background. She had a different understanding of the Old Testament. And Jesus has to break that down. And in order for him to break down this religious barrier... He has to explain to her two things. First, the nature of living water. And second, he needs to explain to her the nature of genuine worship. The nature of living water and the nature of genuine worship. So first, the nature of living water, verses 10 through 14. Jesus turns the conversation towards salvation in verse 10. He says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus uses a physical item, right? What, what they're thinking about right now, that the Samaritan woman and he are thinking about water, a physical item that actually quenches the thirst. Jesus uses that physical item 
to explain a spiritual reality. He uses it as an analogy. He wants her to know about something that's much more important, much more all-satisfying than a drink of water. And that is spiritual, eternal life. So he talks to her about spiritual life and she thinks he's talking about physical life. Verse 11, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then will you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well? So she's saying, listen, you think you can draw from this well? This is a deep well. It's extremely deep. And you don't have anything to draw with. So if you are going to somehow provide for me living water, then you either have some kind of special ability. You're better than our father Jacob who dug this well. Or you're, you're lying to me. You're pulling my leg. And Jesus in verses 13 to 14 helps her to see that he's not talking about physical water from Jacob's well. He's talking about spiritual water. Verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. So, talking about the water from Jacob's well. Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of, of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, listen, the water that I have and that I'm offering is not temporal, not something that satisfies for a time and then you need to go back for more. The water that I give is eternally satisfying. I'm talking about eternal life, that God provides eternal salvation, salvation and satisfaction for His children. And this is something that only God can provide. If the Samaritan woman is going to be saved, she must understand the nature of eternal life. It's the only thing that is satisfying, ultimately. And this eternal life, Jesus is going to explain to her, can only be found through Him. So she needed to understand the nature of living water, but she also needed to understand the nature of true worship. Now, we're going to skip over verses 15 through 19 for a second. We'll come back to it. But there, Jesus shows his divine knowledge and he tells her about her living situation. But then she seems to be confident about what true worship is when she realizes, well, this man's a prophet. Let's, let me talk to him about what true worship is. And Jesus is going to explain to her the nature of true worship in verses 20 through 24. The nature of true worship. Now, we see her faulty view of worship in verse 20. She says, our fathers... So what she's talking about here is the Samaritan fathers people who founded our people. They worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So really it's a statement, but it comes in the form of a question. What really is the proper place to worship? We Samaritans, we worship here in Mount Gerizim. But you Jews, you worship down there in Zion. So which one is correct? See, the Samaritans thought that God should be worshipped in Mount Gerizim because they only believed the first five books of the Bible to be authoritative, the Pentateuch, the laws of Moses. And so they basically scrapped everything else from Judges or from Joshua on. They didn't take that as authoritative or from God. And so in the first five books of the Bible, you don't have a lot of talk about Mount Zion, if any. Instead, you have Abraham and Jacob both worshiping at Mount Gerizim and receiving blessings from God, building altars there in the book of Genesis. And so the Samaritans 
believed that the place that God was rightly worshipped was at Mount Gerizim. And so the Samaritan woman followed her people's view of worship and claimed that they knew what they were doing. But Jesus takes her faulty view of worship as if it's supposed to be in that one place and he shifts the focus to what true worship ought to be in verses 21 through 24. Instead of getting into an argument about where the proper place of worship is, Jesus says the place of worship at some point is going to become irrelevant. Because by virtue of my death, people will be able to worship wherever they are. In other words, the the place of worship in the big scheme of things is not as important as the means and the mode of worship. The where of worship is less important than the who we're worshiping and how we're going about doing it, right? That's what Jesus wants her to see. Verse 21, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. So he doesn't answer her question by saying, you know what, the Jews are right. The right place to worship is at Zion. So you need to start worshiping there. No, he says, you know what, it's not going to matter. Samaritans did miss the point. They, in fact, were wrong. They didn't think that salvation came through the Jews, but but Jesus is saying that that, in fact, is the truth. Verse 22, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. So you people, that's a plural you there, you people worship what you do not know, but we, our people, the Jews, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. What he's saying is you don't have to become a Jew in order to be saved. What he's saying is salvation comes from through the Jewish people. Who is he talking about? Himself, right? I am the Messiah from the Jews. Remember the promise to Abraham? Through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through your seed, Abraham, there's going to come one who's going to provide salvation for all people. And now we know who that person is. And Jesus is is revealing Himself now to this Samaritan woman. The Jews are right. Salvation does come through them, not through their race. That is, you have to become one of their race or, or proselytize in some way. No. You need to accept salvation from the one who descended from them, Jesus, the Messiah. The revelation of God has rightly come through the Jews and ultimately through the Messiah. But she was standing with the Samaritans who denied true worship and and they denied true worship because they denied true revelation. Salvation comes from the Jewish Messiah. And so Jesus goes on in verse 23 to show that true worshipers are those who recognize God's provision of salvation. True worshipers are those who recognize God's provision of salvation. He says, But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. There's coming a day when Jesus will die and provide atonement for all who will trust in Him is what He's telling her. And so the manner of worship that God demands is spiritual. Notice verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Three things that we can't miss from verse 24. First, true worship is in spirit. It's in spirit. It means that we actively engage our whole being in worship. God is spirit 
And so he must be worshipped spiritually. That means that every part of our worship must be done spiritually so that our prayers, our songs, our reading of the Scripture, our church attendance cannot be external only, that we just go through the motions, we've done it. We haven't, our hearts haven't been engaged. That's not true worship. True worship is done in spirit. Second thing we should notice in verse 24 is that true worship is in truth. It's according to God's truth. So we can have a spiritual worship that's not submitted to the truth of God's Word, right? Where we're just kind of doing it our own way. We're engaging our whole person, material and immaterial, but we're not, not submitting ourselves underneath the authority of God's Word, and that would not be proper worship either. So it needs to be both our whole person and submitted to the truth that has been revealed to us in the Scripture. And then the third thing that we cannot miss from verse 24 is that true worship is not an option. Notice, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. It's not an option. We must do it. If we're going to truly worship God, we must do it His way with our whole beings and submitted to Him. Otherwise, God is not worshipped as He desires. Jesus pursues ethnic outsiders Jesus pursues religious outsiders. And then in verses 15 through 19, we see that Jesus pursues moral outsiders for salvation. Jesus pursues moral outsiders for salvation. So as Jesus is explaining to her the nature of living water, she doesn't quite understand what he's talking about, this eternal life. But she plays along with this little game. In verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way down here to draw. Well, this kind of sounds interesting. You say you can provide for me eternal water, living water that will never cause me to thirst again. Well, let's play along with your little game here, Jesus. Let me have some of this water. Again, she's still thinking physically, but Jesus is using the physical to illustrate the spiritual reality. And in order for her to understand, Jesus has to reveal to her his identity. She needs to understand that he is the Messiah. And so Jesus is going to reveal that to her now in verses 16 through 18. In verse 16, she says, or he says to her, go call your husband. And she replies by saying, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband, the man you, you are now, you've had five husbands and the man you're now with is not your husband. Now the word for husband can also be translated as males or men. So when, when Jesus says, you have correctly said, I have, I have no husband, I think she's, he has the same idea as she does and that we would think husband, uh, the spouse of a wife. Verse 18, for you have had five husbands. There, I think, that could be translated as five men. So it could be that she actually had five husbands and five divorces, and now she's with the sixth man, and she's not married to him. She's living with him, sounds like. But I think that probably what Jesus is saying is, you've had five men. You, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five men. Those men have all come and gone, lived with you, and now you're with the sixth man, you're not married to him. So you're right by saying you have no husband. I wouldn't necessarily die on that translation, but I think it's, I think it's, uh, it fits with, with, uh, with the semantic range of the, the Greek word behind it. 
whatever the case, Jesus is revealing something about her that he otherwise wouldn't have known unless he was God himself. And so the woman properly identifies him as, as a prophet. Verse 19, the woman said to her, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I mean, who else can know something like this? This is something that the Samaritans would have been looking for. You see, the Samaritans didn't have a whole line of prophets like the Jews did, right? I mean, we, we have these minor prophets, 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament that the Jews believe in. And then you have the major prophets before them, another six or so. They, they saw all these prophets that have come and gone. And even in the kings, you have Elijah and Elisha and so on. But for the Samaritan who only believes in the first five books of the Bible, they don't have a prophet. I mean, unless you call Moses one. They were actually looking for a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, one day a prophet will come. And so maybe this is the one that we've been looking for. Deuteronomy 18, 15 and following. Jesus pursues outsiders. The reason that he pursues outsiders is to introduce them to the Messiah. The reason for pursuing outsiders is to introduce them to the Messiah. So after Jesus explains the nature of true worship, nature of living water, then the woman says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. I am the promised one that you were looking for. I am the one who will crush the head of the serpent that was promised in Genesis 3.15. Jesus pursues outsiders. As far as application, there's one. Jesus pursues outsiders like you and me. Jesus pursues outsiders like you and me. And aren't you thankful that Jesus doesn't confine the recipients of eternal life only to those who have an ethnic, religious, and moral pedigree? It meets up to his standards. You don't you see, you don't have to be a Jew who was raised in Judaism. You don't have to be a person who's never committed any bad sins. Because Christ will save even the wickedest of people. Christ will save even those who have committed the vilest of sins, who are social outcasts, who are rejected by the masses. Yes, Jesus does pursue insiders like Nicodemus who seem to be on the fast track of eternal life but still need to have their hearts changed. But what we need to recognize is that even a person like Nicodemus is as lost as you and I when we came into this world. But Jesus doesn't just pursue insiders. He also pursues outsiders who have rejected Him and who have spurned His love and who have enjoyed the pleasures of sin for way too long. So no matter where you are in the spectrum of lostness, whether you are self-righteous and externally conforming like Nicodemus or whether you're a spiritual train wreck. Wherever you are in that spectrum, Jesus will save anyone who comes to Him in faith. And that's the power of God's conversion. That He can save those who don't think they need saving. Nicodemus. And He can save those who don't think that they can be saved. How could you possibly save me? I'm way too wicked. The fact is that we all need to be saved from God's wrath because we are born as children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. 
We are born of children as children of wrath. We are born enemies of God. And therefore, we need the Gospel. And so, today, Christ is calling you to be saved. So I say to you, on behalf of the Holy Spirit, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart once again. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin and that He rose from the dead and now is seated at the right hand of God. Because here's the promise that you can bank on. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They will not perish, but have everlasting life. They will have this living water that Jesus promised to the Samaritan woman. Here's the amazing grace of Jesus, is that He knows your deepest sins. sins that were maybe against other people but ultimately against him that ultimately put him on the tree he knows those deepest sins and yet he still offers you salvation isn't that amazing he knew this woman inside and out and yet he still did not turn her away all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved except the really bad ones Is that what it says? No. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Even someone as wicked and as flawed as a Samaritan woman. God is looking for true worshipers, those who will worship in spirit and in truth. And the only way that true worship can happen is if you and I first come to believe that Jesus is enough to satisfy the demands that God has for our salvation. So I say to you, same offer that Jesus made to the Samaritan woman. Come and drink of the only water that will never make you thirst again. Come and believe. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the reminder of Your grace and salvation. No matter where we were on the spectrum of lostness, whether we thought we were good enough to be saved on our own, or whether we thought we were too bad to be saved at all, or somewhere in the middle, or do you provide a way of escape? You provide redemption through the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, and we praise you for that, that, that you initiated salvation with us. Lord, if, if you had not chosen me, I am confident that I would, have not, I would not have chosen you. Because I was your enemy. I hated you. I hated, I hated righteousness. I loved my sin. And so you had to do a work that only you could do. And Lord, as Spurgeon once said, you certainly must have chosen him before he was born because you certainly wouldn't have chosen him after. And you certainly must have chosen him for reasons other than what he would know because he knows himself. Lord, we are thankful that you have chosen us before the foundation of the world and that you have provided a way for us to come in salvation to Jesus Christ. Would you rescue us from ourselves? And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, may we revel in the glory of the gospel and boast in it. It's the only hope that we have in this life. 
There's no hope in ourselves, no hope in our works. We are constantly failing you, but we rest and we are confident in the work of Jesus Christ and in him alone. We pray for your help to continue. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. In Jesus' name, amen.